Well, it's good to be with you again tonight to worship and to hear God's word. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Tonight we're going to survey the contents of Ephesians as we think about the wisdom of God and his purpose for the church. While you're finding your place in Ephesians, let me say a few words of introduction. There's a bit of a joke that's going around um, on social media. It likes to make fun of uh, churches in America and Usually it goes something like this, where the poster will post a picture of some great cathedral in Europe. And then side by side with that picture, you'll see a picture of a church uh, that meets in some kind of storefront shop or a refurbished uh, restaurant. And the question then the poster will ask in a sort of lament and a mocking tone is, um, what happened in so many years that we don't build churches like that great cathedral in Europe anymore? And it's a bit funny, and yet it's, um, also, I think, uh, betrays a, uh, a particular misunderstanding about what constitutes a church. For the cathedral itself is not a church, any more than the storefront uh, houses a, a church. And um, yet that storefront, in fact, may be a more vibrant, a more wonderful, a more glorious congregation than any that meets in that great cathedral. That's something that we're going to see tonight as we consider this letter to the Ephesians and what Paul has to say about the church and about God's purpose for the church. You see, in the early church, they would meet in houses and sometimes even in catacombs. That is the place where they buried their dead. It didn't so much matter where they were. What mattered was that they were gathered, that the people of God were gathered. That is what constituted a church. And so what we're going to see then in Ephesians is that Paul is going to lean into this idea as he compares the church to uh, the temple of God, calling the church God's temple and his workmanship. And as we see some of the metaphors that he uses to speak about the church, even comparing the church to a bride, calling the church the bride of Christ, we see how precious, how glorious, how wonderful the church is. And seeing this and seeing God's purpose for the church and beholding his wisdom in gathering a people and calling them as his people and as his church and making this people his temple, we're going to apply that then in our life together to identify certain principles that Paul would have for us, that Paul had for the Ephesians and he would have for us as a church. So what I want to do then tonight is simply to read the first uh, several verses, about uh, verse 3 through verse 14 of Ephesians, but we'll look at a number of texts But we'll let this be uh, the text that we read before we dive into the uh, sermon. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things 
according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word and as we consider this epistle that your servant Paul wrote so many years ago to our forebears in this faith, the church in Ephesus, we pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and in our minds, that you would give us wisdom indeed, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians as well, and as he taught them and wrote to them, that you would give us wisdom to understand the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of your will, that plan that you hid for long ages and yet revealed in the sending of Christ and in the forming of the church. As we see this mystery and as we come to understand it, Lord, we also pray that you would cause us to walk in this life in accordance with the principles that follow from this great and glorious truth, the gospel, that we would be people who are committed to unity, who are pure in our walk before Christ, and who are steadfast in holding forth the gospel and our commitment to trusting you through all things. This we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about God's purpose for the church, we're going to consider God's priority for us as a church. God's priorities for us as a church. There are four that I want to put before you tonight in the course of things, but right now I simply want to put a single priority before you, and that is wisdom. God's priority for us as his people is wisdom. And not just any kind of wisdom, not wisdom that can be applied in any single walk of life, but rather wisdom to understand his purposes. Wisdom to understand the gospel. Wisdom to understand his work of redemption. And we can see this in Paul's letter to the Ephesians because he uses a great a number of terms that are related to this theme of wisdom in, in Scripture over and over again. You can, you can tell simply by counting all of these words how Paul is very concerned with the wisdom of God and with our wisdom in understanding God's purposes. I could say to you that when we think about biblical wisdom or the way that God demonstrates his wisdom, it, you could say, think of it in terms of three pillars, that God demonstrates his wisdom according to three pillars. That is, uh, the pillar of creation, uh, the pillar of governance, and the pillar of uh, redemption or salvation. In his creating work and his ruling, sovereign, governing work over all creation and in his redeeming work in terms of redeeming and restoring creation. And accordingly, as he gives wisdom to people, we see that they display this wisdom according to these particular ways. One that I want to reflect on for a moment is that creation wisdom. God created the heavens and the earth according to wisdom. And so we read, for instance, in Proverbs 24 verses 3 and 4. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. And a very similar verse phrased in a very similar way earlier in Proverbs, in Proverbs 3, 19 through 20, reflects the fact that when human beings engage in creative work, we reflect the image of God in terms of creational wisdom. Sounds very similar in Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. By wisdom, a house is built. And you hear that echo of the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. Through understanding, it is established. 
Again, echoing, by understanding, he established the heavens. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Once more, echoing this idea that by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down dew. When we think about those together, we can also consider how when God commanded the people of Israel to build a tabernacle for him, he invested certain uh, individuals among the Israelites, two men and many others among them, the craftsmen and the artisans of Israel, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all craftsmanship so that they might create the tabernacle, that they might build that according to the wisdom that God had given them. He gave them the, the language is wisdom and understanding and knowledge in all craftsmanship or workmanship. And that language reflects what God did in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, when he rested, he rested from all of his works. It's the same kind of language. And so you see that in the, uh, in the building of the tabernacle, God gave wisdom so that they might bear his image. They might reflect what he had done. And I, I say all this to express this, uh, this idea of God demonstrating his wisdom in creation and his, his people demonstrating wisdom that they'd received from him in terms of that same similar creative act. Because when we look at Ephesians, we see that Paul describes the work of God in redeeming a people and restoring them and, and, and forming a people for himself through his saving work as an act of wisdom whereby he's engaging in another creative act, another temple-building act, if you would. But here the temple is not one that's made by human hands. It's not one that's made with bricks and stones, but rather... It is a temple made by, with people. We are his workmanship, Paul will tell us in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we're going to see Paul speak a great deal about the wisdom of God. We already saw it in the text that I read. As we think about the way in which God demonstrates his wisdom, look at verse 8. As Paul describes what he's done in redeeming us. He's lavished upon us his grace, the riches of his grace, in all wisdom and insight. And you can think about that language from Proverbs about how by knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down dew and how that's similar to that language of one filling the rooms of a house by knowledge with all kinds of rare and beautiful treasures. And in the same way, according to God's wisdom and according to his insight, he has lavished upon us the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight making known to us, in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul will later on in this epistle, in Ephesians 5.15, call upon the Ephesians, therefore, to walk as those who are wise, not as those who are unwise, because he has made known to them the wisdom of God in his saving work. He's also prayed this very thing for him. Look forward in this text to Ephesians 1, 15, and we'll read here and see what Paul prays for the Ephesians in light of what I've read already about God's plan and how, he, how he's been working from even before the foundation of the earth to create this redeemed people. Paul will say in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know 
What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And in that passage, as Paul tells the Ephesians how he thanks the Lord for them, he also tells them that he prays for them, particularly that God might give them a spirit of wisdom to comprehend, to understand God's great work of grace that he has worked in their lives. Paul doesn't want them to just have any kind of wisdom, not the kind of wisdom perhaps that helps them to build beautiful furniture or to make uh, expert, um, expert clothing uh, like, the, uh, like when the, they built the tabernacle and made the priestly garments. He wants them to have wisdom to understand God's saving work in their lives. That's his priority for them. We could say, as we've looked in the past, that his priority is that they should understand the gospel in all of its fullness, according to all of its riches, according to all of the greatness that the gospel is for us. And there are things that are going to follow from that. Paul will tell them that, uh, that because they're no longer to be counted as Gentiles in Ephesians 4.18, Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding, he'll call, describe them. Then in Ephesians 5.17, He'll tell them that after having said you're not to walk like those Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding, that they're to be people who understand the will of the Lord. That, he, you, that language of understanding is synonymous with wisdom. It conveys that same idea. That because they understand God's work in their lives and what he's called them from and what he's called them to, they're to live in a different way. They're to understand what God would have them to do. They'd have a certain kind of knowledge that we have seen in the texts we've already read Remember Ephesians 1.9, he's making known something to them. And Ephesians 1.17, speaking about being in the knowledge of Christ, in the knowledge of him. Ephesians 1.18, that you may know. I'm just repeating this language so you'll really get the sense of it. How often he speaks about wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And it, he'll go on to speak in this way. So Paul's first, the point that I'm simply making is that Paul's first priority for the Ephesian church and his priority for us is a certain kind of wisdom that we might understand the gospel and its application in our lives in its fullness and its all of its riches in all that God has purposed for his people. Now, certain things are going to flow from that once we do understand the gospel. But Paul's going to focus on a particular aspect of the gospel and he's going to apply it to the Ephesians' life. We, when I say that, I mean that there are, there are many ways in which we can apply the gospel in our lives, but he's going to focus his attention on a specific application in the life of this church in Ephesus. And here we need to turn to another set of words that are in some way related to that wisdom set of uh, words in terms of understanding the gospel. And those two words are mystery and purpose. Mystery is a word you'll see seven times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And purpose is one that you'll see four times. There's a fifth time, but it doesn't I don't count it because it's Paul talking about his own purpose in sending uh, someone to them. But rather, when he speaks about the mystery of the gospel and the purpose of God, we see those together 11 times. And he's speaking about God's eternal purpose, as we read in Ephesians 1, to unite 
all things in Christ and its application in the present for the Ephesians as he speaks about the mystery. Let's look at a few texts. In Ephesians 2, I think you're very familiar probably with the first uh, 10 verses or so of Ephesians 2 and that great verse especially Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. In that broader section what Paul is talking about is what God has done for us in the gospel. We were dead, he'll say. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God has made us alive in Christ. He has done a work of resurrection, spiritually speaking, in our lives by uniting us with Christ so that we who were dead in our sins are now made alive. And that, that famous verse then in verse 8 really summarizes this point by saying, you know, it, it's by grace you have been saved. Because you can't raise yourself to life. You can't, a dead person can't make himself alive again. It must be a gracious gift of the Lord. For by grace you have been saved. But Paul is aiming at something beyond that. He doesn't just simply want us to know, hey, this is by grace, not by works. That's an important, essential aspect of the gospel. But he's taking the argument further. He's speaking to a church that is by and large going to be composed of Gentile Christians. And he has something particular to say to them as people who have come into the, uh, the body of Christ, who have come into the church from a Gentile way of life. And so we'll pick up here in verse 11 and see where Paul takes this argument. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And start, you start to sense a bit of that mystery of the gospel that Paul will talk about uh, a great deal in chapter 3. We'll get, we'll get there. But he's talking about that, that great mystery of the gospel, that God should call for himself Gentile peoples into this community of faith and unite them with Jewish people who also come into the community of faith in the same way through faith in Christ, through the redemption that we have through Christ's atoning work on the cross to become one people 
out of the two, no longer hostile to one another, but at peace with one another as God's household, as this holy temple, this structure that is being built and joined together as a temple of the Lord, people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. With Christ as the cornerstone, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the purpose of God in His people, in His church. It's a glorious purpose. It's, a, it's a, an awesome purpose. It has nothing to do with the, the, the beauty of the building in which we gather. It's everything to do with what God is doing in you, what God is doing in us, what God is doing in believers from every tribe and tongue and nation to unite us as one singular people. This is God's purpose, as Paul lays it out for the Ephesians, to make from, from people from Jew, Jewish and Gentile backgrounds one people. But it's a mysterious purpose. Here Paul will go on in chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. You hear that idea of mystery again. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He talks about this as a mystery, that not the sense of when you think of a mystery novel where, where someone might go and, and uh, look at a bunch of clues and try to solve a crime, a kind of a whodunit. But rather, a mystery in, in the biblical sense is something that is simply hidden. There's some commonality between a mystery novel. The author hides something from you until you come to the end. Uh, but you can perhaps figure that one out and solve it. But in this case, it's something that's hidden that you can't really figure out. You can't get insight into until which time there's a revelation made and the thing is no longer hidden. And Paul can speak about this mystery of the gospel having been hidden for long ages. It's not that the Old Testament says nothing about the nations uh, being gathered under the rule of God. It just doesn't make it so clear the way in which it's going to play out. So Paul himself, being a Jew, found this to be an amazing revelation that came about it, with, with, the, uh, with the founding of the church and with the progress of the gospel, as we read about it in book, the book of Acts. That the gospel should go forth to the Gentiles, that they should be on the same plane, the same level, as the Jewish people, not two different peoples that stay two different people, that stay separate uh, according to two different purposes and plans, but one people joined together according to a single plan of God, that they should be united together as the body of Christ in the church, as the temple of God, as the church. And that was a mystery that was hidden, but has now been revealed, Paul says. So he's gained insight into it, and he wants the Ephesians to be able to perceive that insight that he has gained through revelation from God, which he's making known to them. He goes on in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring delight for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So what Paul is going on to say here then is that this great mystery that has now been revealed that shows the wisdom of God and the unsearchable riches of Christ actually has a great purpose in terms of revealing God's wisdom, not just in the world to mankind, but even to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, even to spiritual beings, that somehow what we are as a church and part of this great universal church of all Christians across all times and in every place, we are somehow making known to even spiritual beings, spiritual authorities, all the rulers in the heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God in his redeeming work to call a people, to unite them, to break down walls of hostility, to unite them in peace, and all of these things through Christ Jesus and through the Spirit of God working in us. It's a great and awesome reality. That's the glory of the church, not the bricks, not the stones, not the work of the human architect that builds the building in which they gather, but what God himself is doing in us as he wills and works for his good pleasure to make of us what he will. There are the three images that Paul gives us to help us to really appreciate that. Two we've already seen. We have the body of Christ, as he said in Ephesians 1.23, with Christ as our head. We are the temple of God, as we saw in Ephesians 1.20, and we saw again in the end of chapter 2, with Christ as our cornerstone, built on the foundation of his servants, the prophets and apostles, through whom God gave us his word. And the final image that he gives us to see the glory of Christ is that we are the bride of Christ as the church. This one he doesn't dwell upon. He rather just gives it to us as a kind of offhand statement as he gives instructions to husbands and wives on how they should live. But in Ephesians 5, verse 32, after giving these instructions and telling husbands and wives that they, in their life, in their marriage together, have a particular privilege of being a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. He says in verse 32 of chapter 5, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's not that in marriage a husband and wife are a picture of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Some have said that. That's not what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Not that there are no analogies there, perhaps, but... His point is rather that our relationship is a picture, a different picture, but still a picture of God and his relationship to us. Husband and wife are a picture of Christ and the church. And so that then uh, shows us again the glory of the church, that God should call this people to set us aside and to refine us and to, to form us to be the bride of Christ. It's an amazing thought. It's a marvelous thought. That's an amazing purpose. And there are things that follow from it. There are things that Paul would have for us as three further priorities that I want to give you. Three further priorities for the church. Unity, purity, and steadfastness. 
And we'll see how all of these follow from this glorious purpose that God has for us. First, unity that is from the Spirit, and it is through that knowledge, through that wisdom, the knowledge of the Son of God. Look at chapter 4 with me. In, in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So here, if you're an Ephesian Christian, you have to think to that mystery that Paul has now made known, that glorious purpose that, that Paul has revealed concerning the church. And you think about your calling to be a part of this church, whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. Maybe as a, a, a Gentile, you're having trouble living with the, the, your Jewish brothers or sisters in Christ. And maybe if you're a Jew, you're having trouble living with your Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. They eat some food that you just don't feel very good about eating or they, uh, they, they talk in a way that makes you feel awkward and all sorts of things, and you're having trouble, and there's strife. And here Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does he mean? With humility, with all humility, and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think about those images of the church that Paul has used earlier in Ephesians. We have the temple. We have the idea of a body. We have the body of Christ with Christ as our head. When you think about a body, what do you have? You have diverse members united in one body working together to accomplish different things at the direction of the head. What the head directs the arms and the feet to do, they do. And they do them in a kind of unity with their own diverse giftedness. I think about a temple. What do you have? You have a building made up of different materials and different parts. You have bricks, you have mortar, you have a foundation, you have uh, a, a ceiling. You've got all sorts of different parts of that structure that hold the thing up. And of course, there's a chief stone. There is a cornerstone, this most glorious piece of that great edifice. They're different parts, but they're all brought together into a unity to make a single structure that is meant to... Uh, to, in the ancient world, the temple was meant to depict the dwelling place of God on earth. Whether it was a pagan temple trying to depict the dwelling place of a false god, or whether it's the temple in Jerusalem that is there to, that, that is there to represent, and it really does, God's glorious presence with his people. It really did at that time, and before the coming of Christ. And so you have these diverse pieces and parts that are brought together into this unity for this glorious purpose. As the church, if we're to think along these lines, we all have uh, diverse uh, gifts. We all have different desires, different personalities, different abilities, different quirks about us. And yet God has brought us all together with all of this diversity for a particular purpose, to glorify him, to glorify him together as the church. And to do that, we have to function with a kind of unity that depends on certain characteristics, certain attributes. We have to be humble. We have to put other people's interests before our own. We need to be gentle with one another, patient with those who might test our patience. We need to bear with one another in love. When people are struggling, we don't just say, oh, well, that person is slowing me down. But we bear with them. We pick them up. People have difficulties and trials in their lives, and you know, it's not like a sports team where, you know, you can say someone suffers an injury and the general manager writes them off and says, oh, you know, you're cut. We're going to get a new player who can play. 
No, 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 we bear with one another. We help one another. We put their interests before our own. We love one another. We are eager, Paul says. We ought to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That, that is, that's what we desire to do when we see uh, tension and we, we see connections fraying. And you can imagine how difficult that might be in a context where people were hostile with one another because of their ethnic backgrounds, where Jews were against Gentiles, where their, their cultural differences from which they came would have uh, immediately made life difficult to live together, yet called to now live together in unity as a new people that God has called. But there's a reason for this as we reflect back onto the mystery of the gospel. Though we're many, with many different abilities, Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So before he gets to the diversity of the church, he emphasizes the things that are one. One God, one Father, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I'll skip the digression there about the ascent and the descent. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge, to the, uh, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. What Paul is saying here is that God's purpose in giving us diverse gifts, diverse abilities, and calling people from different backgrounds with different experiences and different abilities together is not so that we might engage in competition or see who, who, who's the cream that rises to the top, so that we all might work together to build up the church, to edify one another, to encourage one another, so that we might all together grow to maturity. When he says mature manhood, he's speaking about Christian maturity. He's part of that, you think of the church being the body of Christ and think of it as a, as a child and growing up. You want that child to grow up. So too you want the church, you want as a people, that we should grow to maturity together. And that requires a kind of unity where we seek to build one another up. And so the first priority, excuse me, that follows from the priority of wisdom, that, that next priority is the priority of unity. Unity from the Spirit by the knowledge of the Son of God. And what, that, what I mean by that is by the knowledge of what He has done for us and what He is doing for us in uniting us together from all sorts of different backgrounds as one people. The second priority then concerns purity. Here we recognize, if we think about that first one, about unity, especially the context of Jew and Gentile being called into one new people, now we can think about purity in terms of Gentile specifically being called out of one way of life to a new way of life. And here Paul does not mean that they need to now suddenly go and engage in all of those cultural practices that were typical of the Jewish people, but rather they need to turn from the sinful practice that were tip, practices that were typical 
of the Gentile people. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. <coughs> Excuse me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He'll go on from there and describe many of the ways in which we are to walk in this newfound life, no longer living in the way that, uh, the, the manner of our former life. And we can think uh, in terms of uh, Gentiles in the day of the Roman era and all sorts of wickedness they engaged in. And we can think in terms of our day and the way in which the world lives, the way in which our culture, um, the kind of things that our culture embraces. But Paul is telling the Ephesians and he's telling us to put those things aside, to live a new manner of life, not by saying, okay, let's go through all of the laws, let's go through all of the things that you find in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and so on and so forth, but rather by focusing their attention again on God's purpose for the church and calling them to do those things which will mutually edify one another. Perhaps you picked up on some of, those, some of that language as you listened to the things that I was reading, particularly in verse 25 and onward. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Do you see that idea of being truthful with one another is about neighborly love? That is fulfilling the law, loving your neighbor. We're to love our neighbors by being truthful with one another. And what's the basis for that that Paul gives us? Because we're members one of another. We're part of this same body, the body of Christ. One of us may be a hand or a foot or an eye, but we're members of one another. And so we should be honest with one another. We should be truthful with one another. Not just because it says thou shalt not lie, but because that's the way to love one another and to build one another up. And that's why he speaks the way he does about not letting the sun go down on your anger and uh, not stealing anymore, but rather doing honest work with one's hand. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see how Paul puts the focus on the needs of others again and how by working hard we might be in a position where we can love others and help others. And all of these things that Paul gives us so that we might do what? There in verse 29, 
that which is good for building up as fits the occasion. Living with a kind of purity that is focused on love for one another. That is a priority. For, that is a, 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 one of the major priorities for the church, which flows from God's glorious purpose for us. When we know God's purpose for us, and we know what he's done for us, then we can live this kind of life where we are, as he says in verse 32, tenderhearted and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so you see that purity then is a, another principle that flows from a knowledge of God's purpose for the church. And finally, steadfastness. Here we're skip, we'll skip ahead quite a, a little bit. We'll skip over most of chapter 5, which I, I wish we had time to, to spend more time in it, but for the sake of time, we'll go to chapter 6 and pick up in verse 10 and consider this final, um, this final um, principle of steadfastness. Steadfastness in the Spirit with all faith in Christ. Again, this is another passage which I'm sure is very familiar to you. It's familiar to you children from vacation Bible school last year. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Here Paul presents our struggle as one with those heavenly rulers and authorities to whom the wisdom of God is being revealed in the church. He says we are struggling against them. They are the rulers over this present darkness, the darkness out of which we have been called into light to live in purity as children of light. And as we reflect on that reality and that struggle, Paul is going to tell us to take up the armor and the weapons that God has given us for this struggle. To struggle in the strength of his might. To put on the armor of God. And what are those things that we are to take up? In verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. First thing that we think about is the truth. We are to be a people that is, are committed to the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that we live in a life that is righteous before God and righteous before the world. That we don't, uh, that we don't pursue the things that Paul has um, uh, told us we've been called away from. Verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Always being ready, you can, you can think of that language, of always being ready to give an answer. Peter uses that in his letters, for the hope that is within you. Be ready to share the gospel. Be ready to hold forth the gospel of peace at every moment. Not just with unbelievers, but with believers, and to encourage one another on the basis of this great mystery that has been made known to us. In all circumstances, verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we're to be people who hold fast our faith, are steadfast in our trust in Christ and our hope of salvation, these things which defend us as a helmet and as a shield and in our, in our um, uh, attack, our, our one weapon of attack, our sword, what is it? 
It's the word of God. We think about being steadfast as a church and committing ourselves to steadfastness. How do we do this? We do this by holding fast our faith, by hoping in our salvation, by committing ourselves to the word of God in our lives personally, but also in our life corporately. As we study the, God, as we study the word, we hear it preached, we teach it in our homes and here together. This is what we do to stand firm in the evil day as we face the onslaught and the attacks that the devil would bring at us. We're praying as well, not neglecting this essential aspect of our life together. In verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we commit ourselves to prayer, prayer for ourselves, prayer for one another as well, and not just for those in this room and not just those in our congregation, but all the saints in every place, praying that God would build us up together, that he would unite us together, through the gospel, that those whom he's called, like Paul, to go forth and preach that gospel, that he would give them boldness and words and energy and ability to do that, to make known further that mystery of the gospel that Paul spoke about in Ephesians that has become the foundation for our life together as the church. That mystery of the gospel so that more might live with the spirit of unity and impurity and steadfastness of faith as we wait for that day for our Lord to come. So you can see how God's purpose for the church informs how we ought to live together as the church, focusing on these principles in our, lives, our life together, on wisdom and understanding God's purpose for us in the gospel, on unity together in light of God's purpose for us in the gospel, on purity in our lives because of what God has done for us and calling us out of the darkness of this world and on steadfastness in this faith as we live waiting for the fulfillment of all of this glorious purpose at the coming of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this glorious gospel and for what you have done for us, the riches that you have granted to us in Christ. What an amazing reality, that you should make of us your dwelling place, that you should not just dwell with us, but indeed dwell in us, in us individually and in us corporately as your people, as the church. Who could have thought of this but you in all your wisdom? Lord, we pray that you would indeed give us wisdom so that we might understand these things, understanding the height and breadth and depth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And having understood it, Lord, may we commit ourselves to unity and purity and steadfastness together as we hold forth the gospel to a watching world. May we see others come into this fellowship with joy as well, rejoicing in the grace that is offered them in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.